I think the one thing about writing a book is that it is in a way, or rather the one thing about creating a book, it's kind of like a road trip. You know, we're all in this minivan together careening down the highway and we know where we're going. You know, we want to go to Disney World, obviously, but, um, but how we get there is is part of the trip and I think writers need we need to we need a good wingman we need a somebody who's sitting in the front seat who is got the map and who can help us make the correct turns to get where we're going because one wrong turn and we're going to be you know stuck at the alligator farm instead of Disney um well which you know might not be too bad but we want to go to Disney so I think that um, David was especially good about this with me because he his editorial style is so crisp and so um, so intuitive that he could pull out of me uh, what I was trying to say, but I wasn't expressing it on the page. I think that is the biggest you know thing that I always fear as a writer is that. I'll write something and I'll think it's on the page, but really it's not. It's probably, it might just be in my head. So I count on an editor to bring bring some clarity to what I'm doing. And David was amazing at that. And I don't know if it's because he's just an incredible editor, but also he's a writer himself. And I think he brings something even a little bit more special to the table because he's been in the writer's seat before. So he knows what that experience is like. Um, and, and so it's a kind of an extra special, uh, road trip for me. Welcome to the yarn, a backpack media production. This season, we're looking at one book, sunny side up. From all angles. Because while two names appear on the cover, there are a lot of people who helped make it a reality. David Levithan intimidates the heck out of me. Heck, he's the head of the editorial team for Hunger Games. I met David back at a conference in 2011, and I've hung out with him a couple of times in group settings since then. In all of those times, I have said exactly one word to David. I've said it each time, that word, hi. Gearing up for our time with David, I knew that hi probably wasn't going to cut it. Okay, I think we're good. We're good? Yep. Does it sound okay? Sounds great. Does David, can you say your Hello name there. and like your title and stuff? David Levithan, I'm Vice President, Publisher and Editorial Director at Scholastic. Are we good? Is I think we're good. Yep. Sweet. And that's the interview. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that we had David on the podcast, that's enough for this episode. Not my best moment. Thankfully, we settled in a little bit. Kick off the interview by asking David what it was like growing up Lovathan. come from a family of readers, um, but also a family of TV watchers. And so, and so it wasn't wasn't that one thing was forbidden and one thing was favored. I think we could do whatever we wanted. Um, my brother is a visual artist, which is not something that I in any way, shape, or form am inclined towards, or at least inclined towards having talent towards. Um, but really, we were left to our own devices and, and really could create whatever we wanted to create. And my parents
parents and certainly teachers were very indulgent of that. Um, but it just was the luck of the draw that I ended up in a, in a family in a town where that was valued. So what kinds of things did you create as a kid? Oh my god, Every, everything from, I mean, stories certainly. Um, certainly from sort of assignments in second and third grade, I was writing stories. Um, and occasionally would bind them, but then I would I would make greeting cards and try to sell them on the street, which there there's still some hanging around my parents' house. Um, and I mean soap operas with my G.I. Joe and Star Wars figures. I mean those were probably the most creative outlets I had um, growing up because again, just in the afternoon, that's that's what I do. I, I was not I, I had some allegiance to my Atari, but for the most part, I, I would much rather just play with Matchbox cars or G.I. Joes or something and come up with stories that way. Um, yeah, basically, that, that was it. I mean, just different, different storytelling activities without realizing that I was storytelling. And did you share your stories? Um, not, not widely. I mean, I don't think I secretly kept them to myself either. I mean, certainly in school I was sharing them, but... But because it was just my brother and I, I mean, certainly my brother was part of it, but that was that was about it. And you got into publishing young, like relatively young. How did that happen? Um, luck of the draw. I mean, I was, I was at college and needed a summer internship. I'm, I'm lucky because I grew up very near New York City, New Jersey, so having an internship in the city was actually something I could do but still live at home. Um, and the one listing in our career library for a publishing internship was at Scholastic, and so I applied for it and got it. Um, and luckily, I was such a geek that um, when spring break happened, I was at home and I, I wrote to HR. I probably had, I mean, I had to have written or called because the email was not there, um, and said, oh, can I come in and talk about my internship? And they sat me down and they said, oh, we, we want you to, to be in, on the editorial side of our science magazine. And the look on my face must have been priceless, and I very calmly explained that I had actually chosen the college I went to because I would never have to take a science class again, and that maybe even though only a fifth grade knowledge of science was required for, to work on this magazine, it might be a stretch. Um, and she took that into consideration. She um, reassigned me to the books division. Um, I was assigned to one editor, and then an editorial assistant left right before my internship was supposed to begin, so I was also assigned to Bethany Buck, who was then editing the Babysitter's Club, and that's, that's what brought me here and has kept me here ever since. So at 19, David Levithan finds himself working at Scholastic. Huh, at 19, I was working at a grocery store. Third shift, sleeping on a waterbed and attending a community college. I've always thought of myself as my student's editor, my adorable little third graders pour their hearts into their writing, and it is my job to encourage them, celebrate them, and help them take their writing to the next level. Every writer, young and old, is different. Great teachers and great editors know how to push their writers in a way that gets the most out of them. You always just try to get a feel for what their their working process was, is and what they need. I mean, I think it's very, very different from a first-time writer it's all about presenting all the options and sort of saying, we could do this, we can do this, we can do this, let's feel our way and, and figure out what we want to do, and if at any point you want to change up the way we're doing it, that's great. I can read every page you write as you're writing it, I can wait until you're completely done before I read it. So that, that's the conversation you have with a first-time writer, with somebody, or a pair like Jenny and Matt, obviously, they already had their methodology pretty down pat, 
So it was actually more them explaining to me, this is how we work. And they say, okay, that's great. Um, and this is where you will come in. And I say, that's, that's perfect. Um, and we go from there. Um, so that was really the feeling. And obviously this was different from the work they had done before, so it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't quite the same process that they had been through before. But I was very reactive to what they wanted and sort of when they wanted feedback. Not only is David Levithan a world-class editor, he's also a pretty amazing writer. In the next few minutes, you get a chance to listen to Travis and David talk about David's life as a writer. Okay. Um, so thinking of, of you as an author as well, um, and you've probably gotten this question before, but I'm just curious, you know, how does that work as far as, um, so you're, you're here at work and you're editing, and then at home you, you sit down and you start writing at that point, or... How does that, how does your day, what does your day look like, I guess? Well, I mean, it, it's really, it's, it's sort of a, more of a question of what kind of day is it. I mean, it, usually during the weekdays, I'm playing with other people's words, and then on the weekends or on vacations, I, I'm working on my own. It's not, I can't go home at the end of the day in the same way that I very rarely go home at the end of the day, and I'm like, oh, I'm now going to read a novel. Like, I'm, I'm tapped out, um, and so very rarely would I write on the same day that I'm at work, for that matter, read. Um, so that's that's how the separation occurs, and it, it actually makes things so much easier to have that natural separation than try to cram things in on top of one another. When you say you're tapped out, what, what things do you do at that point? Um, mostly go on Facebook and mostly, <laughs> I mean, like answer author email or things that don't require as much concentration. Um, clean my apartment, read magazines, stuff like that. Um, but usually, I mean, usually I'm going out to do something in New York after work, so that's, it's usually by the time I get home, it, it's fairly late, and there is not much waking time or energy to, to work. Um, I'm just curious about this question. What Do you feel like, as far as yourself as an author, was there a book that you felt was the most difficult one to write? Um, that's interesting. I think, I mean, I would say... I would tie between Love is the Higher Law and Two Boys Kissing for the same reason, that both were about subject matters that I felt an added responsibility towards. Um, for Love is the Higher Law, um, it had never been my intention to write a 9-11 novel. I thought, oh, plenty of other people are going to write 9-11 novels. I don't have to. It was too close. Um, but then when people weren't, I was like, okay, you got it. And, and you've got to do it now because you're going to forget. Um, you're not going to forget everything, but you're going to forget the details, and that's what's going to make the novel work. But as I was writing it, certainly the the voice in my head that is usually the doubting voice was like, oh, wow, like writing a bad novel is bad, but writing a bad 9-11 novel would be a particular kind of bad, um, because this is something that means a lot to a lot of people, and don't mess it up. Um, so that, I felt more pressure. And Two Boys Kissing because of the narrative, that it is narrated by this chorus of men who died of AIDS, um, definitely I felt, well, I mean, you're doing this for the right reason, um, and this is the only way to tell this story. At the same time, you are being so massively presumptuous to, to take on this voice of this generation that was before you. 
Um, so that that certainly was hard. Um, so, because you're an author as well, um, it kind of makes you a, a very well-known editor, um, more so than, than, than a lot of editors. What would you say maybe are the pros and what, what might be the cons of that, of being sort of a well-known editor on that side of things? I mean, I think mostly there are pros. I mean, I think, I think it is... I mean, it's more I come into contact with so many awesome people and awesome authors, and I get a chance to work with them in some way um, when the project is right, like Sunny Side Up, and that's that's only a plus. Um, and that certainly I get to know people and know what they they are interested in or what they gravitate towards. So that if I have a project, I'm like, oh, okay, this this would be a good project for this person. Um, and I think what has been amazing is, and most people actually respect the difference between the two roles. Um, occasionally there can be confusion, but for the most part, when I have my author hat on, I'm an author and, and people are not asking me publisher or editorial questions and, and vice versa. Um, I also do think it has made me more certainly empathetic as an editor. Um, there, the first time I had to write a book on deadline, I was, I complained to one of my authors about it and she laughed and laughed and she's like, now you know what it's like. And, and I like to think I was empathetic as an editor before um, being published, but certainly there are some things you can only know by going through them and, and now I've been through them and I do think or hope that that gives me a certain level of expertise when talking to authors that, okay, I, I know what this is like. Um, but at the same time, I also know that my process and that of any of the people I work with is going to be different, and I respect that too. It's been a while since I said something extremely awkward to David Levithan. Well, the wait is over. Are you ready? Wait for it. Wait for it. You'd have to have pretty big chops to, like, edit David Levithan. Big chops? Seriously, Colby. Come on. Right, like you get along with your editor. I mean, I'm yeah, oh, totally. I mean, I love it. Nancy Hinkle has edited most of my books, and we get along famously. I mean, and and I don't think. I mean, I think from the get go, the, the the reference I always make, which I have to stop making because it's a massively dated reference reference that nobody remembers anymore. But there's this William Hurt movie called The Doctor, it came out when I was in high school, and it basically was about he's this powerful surgeon, and then he gets sick, and and he has to basically learn to let go because when you're a doctor, you cannot operate on yourself. And I always use that as the metaphor, and I really don't need the William Hurt movie for the metaphor, so I have to learn to, to cut that out of the, the story, but but same thing, I'm, I'm a surgeon by day, but damn, I cannot perform any surgery on myself. I'd be an idiot if I tried. And some surgeons are such egomaniacs that they will try, but luckily, perhaps because I, I was so young when I started, like I knew from the get-go there was no way that I could edit myself. And I still know that there's no way I can edit myself. Um, and I love Nancy dearly because she, she is on the same wavelength as I am in the best possible way that an editor and a writer can have. So I know I can give her my messy first draft and I know that she will work wonders with it. As you can see, David Levithan is a pretty amazing guy. We had to know. David, why edit Sunnyside Up? Because 
because I love Jenny Home and Matt Home. I mean, I, I have long loved them. I've long loved their work. Um, I'm at a position now as an editor that I only have to work with people that I want to work with, um, and I certainly live and die by that that adage um, because life is too short to work with unpleasant people. Um, so you seek out the pleasant ones and the talented ones. And again, I just always admired them and had always said, just if anything ever comes up, um, please, by all means, I would love to work with you. And certainly when Jill Grimberg, um, their agent, contacted me and said, we have this project, I think it's really special. I, usually you need a lot more to prove to an editor that, that something is special, but I mean, all it took was probably a paragraph of summary and I could immediately in my head see exactly what it was going to be. I mean, because knowing the way Jenny wrote, knowing the way Matt illustrated, um, knowing what the story was and where it was coming from, that was all that I needed. It works on so many levels, and I think that that's its brilliance. I mean, and, and I don't use that word lightly. I think that for some kids, it's just going to be sort of a, a fun romp through a summer holiday filled with old people and, and alligators and golf balls and, and comic books and just it's very much a slice of life but I think for the kids who will actually relate to what Sunny's going through I think it does give that wonderful resonance of oh that's what I'm going through and oh you can see how she charts her way through it and that will help the reader chart their way through it. Sometimes things are a little tricky with friends. David, Jennifer, Matthew are friends. So what is it like to edit your friend? It makes it easier, I, I think. Um, I mean, obviously every situation is different. In this particular situation, it certainly made it easier. I mean, partially because I already knew their talent and knew their visual vocabulary, Matt's visual vocabulary, and so I could have confidence that they could pull off what they were saying they were going to pull off. But interpersonally, I think we totally have an understanding of both each other's writing lives and creative lives, but also outside lives too. And so um, oftentimes, I mean, I'm working on many projects at once. Sometimes people have to wait to get feedback, but I knew that they were very aware that if they were not hearing from me, it didn't mean that I had something awful to say that I was just sort of figuring out a way to say it, which many authors leap to that immediately. Um, but they just knew, oh, he's busy. Similarly, if I would needed them to do something and I wasn't hearing back, I'd be like, oh, Jenny must be at this Comic-Con right now. Oh, Matt must be traveling there. So there was sort of an understanding of our lives, which would, comes from familiarity with each other more than just, I mean, again, as, as more than you would have with somebody you're working with for the first time. So the, the world has changed, book publishing world, and the books that we have have changed a lot since you started. Um, do you, where do you think we still need to go? We have to continue to diversify, continue to have new voices, we have to continue to fight all kinds of biases, um, whether gender biases or race biases or sexuality biases, um, with our work. And it's children's books and YA, it's, it's a progressive calling. Um, and we have had marked progress so far, there's still more progress to be had. I mean, talking about Sunny Side Up or looking at Raina Telgemeier's books, I mean, it is somewhat extraordinary because 10 years ago, if you had said, oh, our lead titles are going to be comic books about girls, you would have been laughed out of the room. 
um, and nobody would have been like, oh yes, that's going to make millions, that's great, all the kids will want that. Like, it was just, it was something so irrationally um, condescended towards, um, and certainly people would have said, oh, why, why try that? Obviously, we did try it, and obviously it has been a huge success because the, the bias was a ridiculous one, but it took some time to knock it down, and I think there are still those biases there, um, again, I think you can, I chose the gender bias, there was also bias against graphic novels. I mean, like, I think there, there are all of these things that, you, in order to have progress, you just have to keep pushing. And I think that's what we as publishers keep doing. And I think we've done a very good job over the 20 years that I've been doing it, but certainly there are still more things to push against. What biases do you see now? Well, I mean, again, I think there's still, there's, we still, hear the categorization of girl book and boy book, which I think is a ridiculous categorization and a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, it's just cheap shorthand that that creates the problem more than it addresses the problem. Um, and again, I think that that there is this, this question of appropriateness when talking about difficult subjects, um, especially with children, as if children don't have to deal with those difficult subjects. Again, Sunny Side Up being a great example of an amazing book that totally stays to the appropriate age level as far as comprehension and what kids will be able to deal with in the book as well as in life, but doesn't shy away from the fact that bad things happen. And a lot of the times, one of the worst things about the bad thing is that nobody's talking to you about it. Um, and Again, sometimes literature takes that same task and doesn't talk about it because they don't know if the kids are ready for it. And really, ready, ready is not the issue um, because it's happening and you have to deal with it. And I think, again, the bias sometimes is towards silence and it is up to us and both authors and publishers to grapple with it instead and not be silent for everything that does happen to kids. So I think, I think that's, again, and that's broad and can be applied to many different areas, but I think that that is the challenge. A great cover can be the difference in whether or not a kid picks up a book. Next time on The Yarn, you'll hear from cover designer Phil Falco. So basically I come up with the covers and, you know, the interior design and, um, for graphic novels, it's a lot of like managing and you know working with a bunch of different people. Bats, snakes, mice. I'm pretty terrified of those things. One thing that I'm no longer scared of, David Levithan. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Yarn. We'd love to hear what you think. You can tweet us at The Yarn Podcast or send us an email at theyarnpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>